What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Molly Bloom is an inspirational keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and best-selling author of her memoir, Molly's Game, which was adapted into an award-winning film by the same name by Aaron Sorkin. Bloom's memoir chronicles her journey from college student to L.A. waitress to building and operating the largest and most notorious private poker game in the world. Her game features hundreds of millions of dollars and players like Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, Alex Rodriguez, and Ben Affleck. In this interview, Molly pulls back the curtain into her high-stakes life. One of the newest sponsors of the podcast and one of my favorite brands right now is Viore Clothing. Viore is the perfect performance apparel for anyone who loves yoga, surfing, hiking, being active, or in the weight room. They combine innovative fabrics with cool finishes that really feel good and are great for the environment. I would head over to vioreclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com to receive 25% off. Yes, that's 25% off your first order. Use discount code WGYT. And if at any point you're not satisfied with the purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your order with 100% satisfaction guaranteed at vioreclothing.com. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Molly Bloom, thank you for joining us on What Got You There. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. So I was fortunate enough to see the movie a few weeks ago. I absolutely loved it, and I cannot wait to dive into this story. So I think where we need to start is with twigs. You don't seem to get along with those little branches, do you? (laughs) I trip on a lot of sticks, it seems. (laughs) Obviously, we need to let the listeners know uh, exactly what happened during your childhood with twigs that, that really changed the trajectory of your life. Yeah. Do you want me to do you want me to go into that? That would be great if you could. Okay. Yeah, so the twig that that we're referring to is uh you know just to give a little background um I was I I I was skiing for the US ski team. I was ranked 3rd overall in North America and I was fortunate enough to make it all the way to the Olympic qualifier um which basically if I did well, I would have been in the Olympics that year. And I was having a great run, and then um, I skied over a stick, and my ski pre-released, and I fell on my head from 20 feet in the air, and I re-injured um, a previous spinal injury, 
And that was the end of my skiing career. So I started the day out thinking, God, if I have a good day, I'm going to the Olympics. If I don't, I'm still nationally ranked. And I ended the day with, that's it. I mean, that's an unbelievable blow to, to take as a child, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it was destabilizing, for sure. Destabilizing. So, I mean, what does life look like from, what? how old were you there, 12 or 13? So, uh, you know, I, at, at 12, I had a spinal fusion. That's so what they, it was. Yeah, so at 12, they, um, I was diagnosed with scoliosis, and um, they fused my top 11 vertebrae together and put two metal rods um, on my spine, and the doctors were like, kiddo, I don't think mogul skiing is in your future. But, you know, I was stubborn, and I was starting to not listen to adults. So I just went ahead and still made the U.S. ski team and still was nationally ranked. And then at 20 years old is when I had that accident and, and sort of, you know, re-injured my back to the degree that I, I really knew. Like, the doctors were like, you almost got paralyzed. Like, you can't do this anymore. Um, so there was kind of two incidents. But... But yeah, I mean, you know, at 20 years old, I thought I knew exactly what the rest of my life looked like. I was applying to law school. I was a very serious student. I was planning on the Olympics and I thought I had it all mapped out. And sometimes everything changes in a moment like that. I think that as, as human beings, we all have at least one of those moments and, and then, you know, kind of charting the fallout <laughs> 10 years was, was unpredictable. I mean, it's pretty cool to hear about what happened when you were around 12 or 13 with the spinal fusion, um, and then obviously what happened uh, with your Olympic trials and just how you're able to overcome those. And obviously, you do not take no for an answer, which led to the <laughs> next step and, and everything that led to the book and the movie. So how do you go from being an Olympic hopeful, you said you were getting ready for law school, to then ending mm -hmm. up in the in the next stage of your life? Well, I, I think uh, I was a little bit in a meltdown, you know, like I all my plans were changed. I felt very powerless over it. And um, I just told myself I need a year to kind of figure this out. And so I went to Los Angeles really only because I was sick of being cold, you know, as a, as a US 18 mobile skier. You're training during the winters, and then during the summer, you go where there's someone else's winter. So I was just, you know, I was like, maybe I should just go somewhere warm and be a kid for a year. So I went to Los Angeles, and um, I didn't have any money, and my parents were not supportive of this decision. And so I had to get a job right away, and I got a, a job as a waitress and as an executive assistant. And um, through those two things, uh, someone offered me the, you know, a, a waitressing job at a poker game. And I'm like, okay, uh, you know, and I'm trying to, I, I, I Googled, like, what kind of music do poker players like to listen to, and what do they talk about? I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to and then these guys start walking in the room for this poker game and it Leonardo DiCaprio and Ben Affleck and heads of studios and heads of banks and politicians and I'm like whoa and you know I just had this moment where I was like yeah I, I think that this is a really interesting opportunity to get in front of people who have insane access insane networks insane power and, and then at the end of the night, after bringing people some drinks, I made $3,000 and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in, I'm staying in this room for a minute, you know? And, <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I'm, you know, so I just did what, what, what we know how to do, you know, through sports or skiing, I mean, through sports or, or school or life, I just tried to learn something that I didn't know. So I tried to study 
you know, I became fluent in the language of poker, but then I also kind of took a, a page out of my dad's book. My dad's a psychologist and he really raised us, um, with, you know, a, a, a process of life through that lens. And so I'm like, okay, who are these people? You know, why are these people who are some of the richest, most powerful, um, most connected people? Why do they want to be in this dingy basement playing poker? And what I realized is they didn't want for things like most of us do. They, they could buy anything they wanted. They wanted experiences. And so I built on that. I was like, okay, so how do I help to create this escapism, this, this, you know, this experience where they can walk in the room and feel like James Bond for a night and completely forget about the rest of their life. Because that's what it felt like to me. It felt like just a desire for escapism. And so over the next six to eight months, I, you know, I learned how to throw a great poker game, but I also learned how to create a, a really um, compelling transformational experience. I love how you were able to deconstruct that and, and understand that what they wanted was escapism. And as you said, wanted to be James Bond mm -hmm. for a night. And I mean, mm -hmm. you walk into this, what you say is an interesting opportunity and you had no background in poker, correct? I, I don't think you've ever played before prior to this, right? No, I, I, I didn't even, I didn't know anything about the game. <laughs> so, yeah. so I mean, then you, you walk in, you've got no idea about the game and there's Leo DiCaprio. I mean, I can't even imagine some of the things going through your head. I mean, what is that like? And, and you were young 20s at the time. I mean, that's a lot to process. It's just like error message, error message. <laughs> right now, you know, and you're just like, all right, well, let's just try to figure it out. But let, there's enough interesting things happening right now that I'm just going to hold on for dear life and try to figure out how to stay. So when did it click for you that, hey, this is a business opportunity? Was it the end of that first night when you got $3,000 uh -huh. in cash in your hand? You're like, you know what? This could really be something. Yeah, and it wasn't just the money. I'm not going to minimize the money. Um, it, it was it was certainly impactful, but I got there before I got paid. Um, and because I got there when I realized the network that I had the opportunity to be in front of and also being a fly on the wall in that room. I mean, these guys were talking really candidly. And I was learning um, things that you can't learn in, in school, you know, just the, the access to that information. Um, and I've always been very intellectually curious. So there was just so many factors that were appealing to me. So, I mean, you mentioned the kind of that fly on the wall mentality and also opportunity. So what are these mm -hmm. little things you're noticing during the game that, hey, if I ran my own game, I could do this differently and make this way more successful? Well, I mean, I think how, how to how to run my own game. I don't think I, I got that in, in the first night. Um, I think I was just trying to figure out like, you know, they, they were using words I didn't know. So I was Googling the words and, and then I'm listening to them talk about business deals they're doing, or I'm listening to them talk about um, up and coming tech companies. I'm listening to all this information. And then at the end of the night, um, you know, they're, they're just handing me all this money. And I also saw something in that, in that night that, that impacted me, which was the kind of casual callousness that emerges when you have chips instead of cash. So the, the way that they're betting, the way that they're, they're throwing money around, you know, I was like, wow, like if, if, if you have this chip society for currency, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there's a casualness about it. So you know, I can't say that I knew how to do the game better the first night because I didn't even know what the game was. You know, I was like, what does blinds mean? What does poker mean? What, what does bet mean? <laughs> like all this stuff. But then, um, 
you know, when when I when I became fluent in in poker, then I started looking at it from sort of the, the behavioral component. Okay, now how can I upgrade the experience for them? I mean, you mentioned being intellectually curious from a young age. How did you first develop mm-hmm. that, or is that something just internal you had? It's th- that that was just in me. Um, I I just really liked. I loved to read when I was little. I mean, I still do, but um, I love to read. I love to learn. I was very fascinated with the world and with and with learning new information. So, I mean, during this time, you're just processing so much. Do you want to walk the listeners through kind of just the logistics of, hey, this is what the poker game looks like from when the people walk in, how the money's handled? Because I kind of want everyone to really understand what you're doing. The movie did a great job of doing this, but if you could kind of just give a short synopsis of, of what that yeah. looks like. Well, I mean, let's jump ahead to when I was running the game because when I was waitressing, I, I, it wasn't as interesting. But um, so, you know, as soon as I took over the games, um, there was there was a, some really critical um, things that that I had to figure out. One was recruitment of players. I, I didn't have advertising. I, I couldn't, you know, like recruitment had to come had to come from um, being creative. Um, and so, you know, I would have to. I went to Vegas and I made deals with the casino host. You know, I said to them, "Look, I've got a roster of twenty of the biggest gamblers in the world." I'll bring them to Vegas. I'll do games for them in the, in the suites. They'll go down to the tables. They'll gamble millions of dollars. You'll have an insane weekend. You'll get new clients and everything, but you need to send me poker players. Or I went to the, the clubs that I used to waitress at and I incentivized the girls that I used to waitress, you know, bottle service with. And I was like, look, if you see someone who's a big spender, ask these five questions, figure out if they're a poker player, send them to me. I'll give you money every time they show up. Um, and so, you know, that was the first thing that I kind of had to learn how to do. Then you have to learn how to vet somebody. You know, I'm guaranteeing this game. My, I'm, I'm responsible for the money and people are not bringing, you know, people are bringing checks. They're not bringing cash. And, you know, in LA and New York, people can drive Ferraris, but have $5 in their bank account. That's, that's the way that place rolls. So then it was a matter of like, how do I vet people without the traditional, Recourse, you know, because I can't, I, I, we're not papering these debts. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it was like, okay, how do I build on, on the experience? How do I, how do they make them feel like James Bond for a night? And that was kind of a recipe of the economics. So it had to be um, stakes that they're gambling for that are big enough to get them sort of to that escapist place, but that aren't so big that they bankrupt your game. Um, then it was, taking a page out of Steve Wynn's book. When you go to the Wynn Casino, you, you realize that all of your senses are sort of managed there. It smells a certain way. It looks a certain way. The air is a certain way. The, everything you're looking at, the decor, the people, you know, it's all attractive people. It's all attractive decor. And so just kind of going at it from that, from that um, angle. And then, you know, memorizing what people's drinks are, memorizing what they like to eat, you know, because there is such a huge value in people feeling like they've been seen, heard, remembered. So that's just like a couple things that, um, you know, that, that contributed to the creation of this game and, and, and my ultimate success. 
before ultimate failure. <laughs> I mean, I love the creativity of the recruitment of the players and then also just kind of hearing your process in terms of how you controlled the environment, all of these little things you were doing that you knew would create a better end product for the consumer being these poker players. So it's really fascinating to hear. Yeah. What type of money was on the table during these games? Yeah, so like I saw someone lose $100 million in a night. It was not uncommon for the pots to get up into the millions. Um, you know, I kept spreadsheets on everyone. I did the accounting on everyone. The numbers were astronomical. I was making $4 million a year. Uh, you know, it was just, it, it, it was a, and, and particularly in 2008, when I was running the Wall Street games in New York, you would think that you wouldn't see these kind of numbers. I mean, you know, the, the economy was destroyed, but it didn't, it didn't affect some of these small pockets. I mean, when you see someone lose a hundred million dollars, what does that mm -hmm. feel like in the air? I mean, everyone in that room has to feel that, right? Yeah, everyone in the room feels it, and uh, of course, the winner is having the best night of their life. I'm physically sick. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as a game runner, you don't want to see that kind of loss yeah. ever. And, and as a human being, you're like just running through like what that money could do to change lives. I mean, anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, that, so, that, that's yeah. generational money right there. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, it feels, yeah, I felt sick that night. Um, but there was, in the beginning, as you as you build this thing up and, um, you know, some of the big losses is great for you because it builds on the mythology of your game. And then you, you know, you have brand evangelists, if you will, that go out and talk about the biggest game in Hollywood, the biggest game in New York, celebrities, money, you know, you know, it's good for your brand. I love that point. And it's something I didn't even fully think about just the narrative that you're creating there. I mean, what other things mm -hmm. did you yeah. do? I mean, because you are clearly very intelligent. I think you understood all of these little things to to create that master <laughs> end game. So were there other things you were doing to really build up that narrative? I mean, having the A-list celebrities, having these tech and Wall Street yeah. people obviously helps that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you want to find big names. You want to you want to build on the mythology. Um, you know, if 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 an insurance broker comes, no one's going to talk about it. If the insurance broker loses $10 million, people will talk about it. Hmm. If Leonardo DiCaprio comes, people will talk about it. It doesn't matter if he wins or loses very much, you know? Yeah. I mean, out of the people that you can mention or have mentioned in the past, mm -hmm. which one really, I don't want to say took your breath away, but were you just like, wow, I'm in the same room as this person? Was it Leo? Um, I didn't really ever have that feeling. So that's what I wanted to uncover. I absolutely love that. So where, where does that come from for you? Because I, I think if you were to take a thousand people, 999 of them would say, oh my gosh, I could not believe I was in the same room as this person. Um, you know, I think it probably comes from um, the way that I was raised. And the way that I was raised was really along the lines of like um, being impressed by a different sort of value set. Like what is this person doing in the world? Like, you know, there are things about like a Leonardo DiCaprio that I think are incredible, his charitable work, you know? And, and listen, I'm not going to say that it wasn't like for a minute, I wasn't like, Oh my God, it's Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't ruminate on it. And it didn't feel like I, I wasn't, I was more just like, this is interesting, you know? Um, but I didn't get, I didn't really get in awe of, of the celebrity factor. Um, there were people that played that, 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 are insanely brilliant that when they talk, you're just like, whoa, 
that, that to me is a little bit like was a little bit more, um, I, I had a little bit more of a crush on that, you know? No, it's fascinating to hear. And I mean, you mentioned during your best year, you're walking away with about $4 million, but everything mm-hmm. wasn't so successful. Was it sort of the spiral downhill? What happened in that yeah. time that things started to go bad? Well, you know, I think it was a, um, it was, it was a symphony, um, of, you know, it wasn't just one thing. You know, when I, when I left home, I grew up with two really, um, sort of my, my two brothers, were prodigies. Jeremy was a prodigy athlete. He he's a two-time Olympian and also an, an, an NFL football player. Jordan is a Harvard-educated cardiothoracic surgeon, and they just basically came out of the womb like with that skill set. With this, the, you know, Jordan was like blowing minds with his intelligence from a really young age. Jeremy was blowing minds with his athleticism. And and even though um, you know I was successful at both of those things, compared to my brothers, I wasn't. And so. I didn't really like, I was so hell bent on, on being recognized for what I could do for what I could be, you know, be significant at that. I, that I think I started, I think I lacked sort of building that, that internal self-esteem, you know, I was really searching for it, seeking for it on the outside. And then when this all started to come together with the poker game, it was like a drug, you know, it was like my, my ego got caught up. I got, I got very obsessed with success and money and how that made me look and, and the game, the fact that I was running it and I was in my early twenties and everything. And, and over time, I just let that become a hundred percent of my identity. You know, I started getting away from those values that, that my parents had raised me with, uh, that like, it doesn't matter what car you drive, who are you being in the world, things like that. And then, you know, building the game's uh, bigger and bigger. And I was basically, you know, a one woman show running it. It became really unsustainable. And instead of scaling back and staying on target with intelligent growth, I just scaled myself up and used like stimulants to stay up at night, you know, to, to be able to stay up for all these games, uh, you know, like Xanax to deal with the anxiety of how much money I had on the table and the fact that I was guaranteeing these numbers and organized crime was getting involved and like, it was all these things all these kind of clear signals that it was time to maybe do something differently. And instead of doing that, I just leaned into the unsustainability and, and got really caught up with drugs, really caught up with, you know, alcohol, really caught up with the money and the greed and started making decisions based in those factors. And, you know, I think as soon as you start doing that, it's just kind of, it's, it's a matter of, not if, it's when. <laughs> yeah, no, you put it, it was a symphony. And I mean, that really did, all of those things came together. Um, can you explain mm-hmm. for the listeners what you actually mean by you were having to cover the money on the table? Yeah. So I I lost the game in LA because um, somebody didn't like the fact that, you know, I I was in control and I was making all this money and, and it was like this really unjust thing. And, and so then I went to New York and, and built, even bigger games, but the lesson that I, that I carried from that LA experience was I want to, you know, I don't want to like put all my, you know, my heart, my soul, my like understanding of brand building into this game when I can just lose it. And so what I wanted to do is I was like, I'll be the bank, you know, because if I'm the bank, then they're all tied in and I'm not replaceable in any way. It's not the type of situation where I can just build this great game and someone else can just take it. Like if I'm the bank, you know, I'm not replaceable. 
And so um, I started guaranteeing all the money and covering people, you know, covering the losses when people stiffed or didn't pay. And that, that, you know, it, it was true. Um, nobody was leaving, you know, and no one was taking my game, but it was also, um, without, without traditional recourse, you know, to collect on debt. And obviously I wasn't going to be, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to walk around the chase all that. Like I'm not that person. So it, it just, it, it was a very, it was very challenging. Yeah, I can only imagine the stress that would cause. And you mentioned you're not going to walk around with a baseball bat, but people who do, the Russian mob, uh, they approached you, didn't they? The Italian mob, actually. Oh, sorry, the Italian mob. That's okay. It's hard to keep up with all my mob <laughs> stories. Um, yeah, so the, yeah, so they came to me and said, you know, we, we hear that you have these great games, but this is kind of more traditionally our racket or whatever they said. Um, and we think we should just go into business together. And, um, and then they sent someone to my apartment after I, you know, continually said, no, they sent someone to my apartment and he assaulted me and stuff a gun in my mouth and said, this, this offer is not optional. Um, so, you know, that was, that was another, when we're talking about the symphony of how things got out of control, you know, that was a clear indication that this thing wasn't safe. And instead of, you know, realizing that at the time, I was like, I, I didn't, I just kept going. I kept running games and I got lucky in that they arrested 125 people in the biggest mob related takedown in New York city history a couple weeks after, you know, that guy came to my apartment and I never heard from them again, but any way you look at it, this thing is now, you know, not okay. I mean, it seems you somewhat gloss over when he comes to your apartment and you actually have a gun stuck yeah. in your mouth. Is it because you try not to remember how crazy and insane of a moment that was or because actually you were so focused on the game that you just kind of put it behind you immediately? Yeah, I I, I think I've, I think that that was the darkest moment of my life. Gotcha. Um, and not only because I really thought that I was going to die, um, and everything, you know, after the initial fear subsided, after he went away, I wasn't willing to walk away from this thing. And that to me was like, it was so dark because it was like the enemy was actually within. I was, I was in a place where I was putting success and ambition above life and liberty, you know? So that was a really dark moment because it's like, all of a sudden I can't trust myself. I can't trust my decisions. Well, I definitely want to leave the ending and what's next uh, for the listeners to go get the book and uh, also check out the movie. But the movie, how does that come to be made? I mean, it's incredibly <laughs> fortunate. Up for an Oscar, Aaron Sorkin made the film. I mean, unbelievable who was involved with this. Yeah. So I, I you know, when when when, every, when I got arrested and, and lost all my money and everything, I was like, okay, well, what's the solution here? You know, what's the way out? And- I realized that I, that, that I think that the, what I realized was that the story was, you know, to me, that was the monetizable asset. There's a really unique story here. And so then I started looking at ways to, to monetize the story. And, and, you know, the first one was to write a book because you want to own your own IP because that way you can have, you know, multiple revenue streams from it if you make it into a movie, <laughs> you know? So I wrote the book and then I 
And then I started kind of doing some research on Hollywood and taking as many meetings as I could, trying to figure out what the best way to success would be. And, you know, I realized that it's about content and it's about writing. And then I started looking at writers and I'm like, if I run the numbers on these writers, like who's churning out the most box office hits, um, you know, the, the award noms, who makes noise and who makes money. And to me, that was Aaron Sorkin. And he also happened to be my favorite writer. And so then I just went around asking for meetings, you know, like asking everyone that would listen to me for a meeting with Aaron Sorkin. And most people laughed me out of their office. They're like, this is like more of a lifetime movie, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, so is that a no? (laughs) So you can't set up a meeting. And finally, like the, you know, the persistence paid off and somebody asked him for a personal favor. And he said, going into it, he was like, I'm not really sure why I'm meeting with this poker princess person. And, and then after the meeting, he said he knew before he left the parking garage that he wanted to write it. So I just got really lucky. And, and then when he came to the project, everything changed, obviously, because he carries so much gravity and weight. He's so respected. He's so revered. He's arguably one of the best screenwriters of our time. And, and then, you know, I worked with him for eight months and had the honor of you know, being a genius in action and seeing this process and being part of it. And it, it was all pretty surreal. It's so interesting hearing about how many layers of depth you uncover with each project you're involved with. First poker game and then obviously <laughs> having this movie. So you mentioned his genius. I mean, what's one major takeaway you had from working with Aaron? You know, Aaron, um, Aaron is somebody who literally cannot move on unless he gets it right. So he will, you know, a lot of people just kind of like keep it moving or whatever. And he's such a perfectionist and that if, if something isn't true for him or something isn't right for him, if something isn't, you know, aligned with sort of the, the, the type of story he wants to tell, he'll just stay stuck, you know, until he's unstuck. And it was really inspirational for me because I saw him stay stuck, stay stuck, stay stuck, but stay with it and then get through it. And so that was really cool for me to witness someone who has that process because you realize they get unstuck, they get uncomfortable, you know, but until it's right, they don't move on because so many people are always in such a rush, you know, even like after this movie came out, everyone's like, would you have to have your next thing you're doing lined up? And I'm like, but I don't know what it is, you know, and, and I've got to get there. And just seeing Aaron work through getting stuck and be patient with the process and, and the kind of like gems that came out of him, staying with it were really inspirational for me and really a a teaching moment for me. No, that's very cool to kind of pull back the curtain and really hear about one of Hollywood's greatest. And I'm so fascinated by you and and your story, but I'm curious about how your perspective on success and wealth and all those experiences, how have that changed after all this? It's changed radically. Um, You know, I always thought that the way that I felt inside, which was kind of a little bit empty and, and and a little bit like unfulfilled would change if I achieved great success. You know, I thought that that was the answer. And then I got there and not only did it not really fix me inside, almost everyone that I was surrounded with. And these were some of the people, these were some people who had everything, you know, um, they were also not fulfilled. And so it just kind of opened my eyes to, the fallacy of that. And, and so this time around, um, 
look, I'm always going to be ambitious. I'm always going to want to be financially, um, you know, independent. And I'm always going to be really geared towards success. But for me, it has to have a purposeful component to it. It has to be about something bigger than myself. It can't just be about how successful can I make Molly or how much money can I make? You know, it has to be about sort of something that's more aligned with humanity as a whole, you know, and, and, and look, you know, I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm never going to be, but, um, there, there needs to be a part of it, whether it's mentoring other women or, or, you know, like being, being involved in service. That's a part of my, I don't know. It, it has to be about something bigger than myself. It can't just be about self. I mean, as, as you're thinking about next chapter in your life, I mean, you acquired a unique skill set and you gained invaluable mm-hmm. experiences during this time running the game. I mean, how do you really use those experiences and skills moving forward now? I mean, there must be things that you just, you learned through those years that are just so incredible, both from a business perspective, mentoring perspective, how you can help the next generation. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, one thing that's really interesting to me um, in, in taking, talking about uh, transformational experiences um, and combining that with something I learned through being in a 12 step program, you know, eventually I went to rehab and I got sober and uh, I'm, I'm part of a 12 step program and it's changed my life as well is how powerful and valuable building community around shared experiences. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm, I'm out there, I'm speaking, I'm giving keynotes, I'm, I'm writing another book, but I'm also looking at how do I create transformational experiences for young female entrepreneurs, um, to come together, support each other, and to and to share solution uh, and move each other forward. You know, so that's something I'm really looking at with the big picture there. Like right now, it's just about speaking, but down the road, maybe it's about conferences, maybe it's about um, workshops, maybe it's about like you know a digital interpretation of a network where we're helping each other. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Yeah, no, that's certainly a space that can be disrupted. And we've mentioned this in the call just about how motivated, driven, and intelligent you are. So I'm really interested to see what comes out of that next. But uh, Molly Bloom, I, I absolutely loved hearing your story. I love the book. I love the movie. Where can the listeners best stay connected with you? Um, yeah, I'm on I'm on social media. I'm not someone that posts every day, but I definitely stay connected um, on Instagram, on Twitter. And, you know, I think also um, I'm writing another book and it's about, it's, it's memoir because I'm not an expert on, on you know, I'm not like a doctor or whatever, so I can just talk about my experience, but this one's more about the experience of building brands, of, um, you know, what happens when your life falls apart, how do you come back from that. It's more like a solution-based um, story about, you know, walking through these things and, 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 you know, from this perspective of, like, making a Hollywood movie and, and, you know, getting published uh, as, a, as a first-time author. Do you know when that's going to be released? I got to write it first. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit of work to do first. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I'm in that process where you're just like, uh, writing a book is so hard. <laughs> but it's good. It's good. This one's a lot easier to write than the other one. So you mentioned kind of your writing. What's your writing process like? Um. Writing for me is like anything else. It's like training in sports or whatever. It's it's very difficult. And the way to make it less difficult is to build that muscle, to sit down every day and write every day, you know, and start out conservative if you need to, write for five minutes. Just make sure you're doing it every day because that's when like that crazy resistance and aversion to doing it doesn't take over and you can sit down and enjoy the process. And that's when the gold starts to come, I think. 
Man, amazing advice. That's a great way to end this conversation. Molly Bloom, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you. Looking to freshen up your wardrobe for the summer season? Having trouble finding a brand whose products are functionally built to move and sweat in, but designed with a casual aesthetic aimed at everyday life? Then Viore is the clothing brand you've been looking for. Viore merges technical clothing with a West Coast vibe that looks and fits great. Viore's motto is built to move in, styled for life. They have a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore has incorporated innovative fabrics that feature anti-odor finishes, moisture wicking, and quick dry finishes. My favorite being Sea Cell, which is a sustainably sourced fiber that uses a blend of algae and wood pulp to create the most comfortable shirts you've ever felt. They really are. They're incredible. They're also anti-odor and filled with vitamins and nutrients that are released when you sweat. To receive 25% off, yes, that's 25% off your order, head to vioriclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com and use discount code W-G-Y-T. If at any point you're unsatisfied with your purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your entire order with a 100% satisfaction guaranteed. VioriClothing.com, discount code WGYT for 25% off your order. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.